This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Air Force has a nominee to lead its acquisition office tonight. Andrew Hunter is the administration's choice to become the next Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. He served as Chief of Staff to the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics and as Director of the Joint Rapid Acquisition Cell. Air Force Lieutenant General Mike Minahan will pin a fourth star and become the new commander of Air Mobility Command if the Senate confirms him. He's deputy commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command now. Air Force Times reports he'll replace General Jacqueline uh, Van Ovost upon confirmation. The government publishing office will give about a third of its 1,500 employees the option to work remotely full-time after the pandemic. GPO Director Hugh Halpern says those employees will work with their managers to determine whether remote work, office work, or a mix is right for them. GovExec reports GPO has about 1,000 employees that work in the agency's printing plants that can't work remotely. Welcome back. The hold is off the nomination of Frank Kendall to become the next Secretary of the Air Force tonight. One of the biggest budget challenges he may face if the Senate confirms him, though, is something he can't control. Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, U.S. Air Force retired, is dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. He's writing about budget accounting at the Department of Defense in Forbes. Dave, welcome. It's great to have you back on the program. Um, you write this, which is striking to me. Take a quick look at the DOD budget request for FY22. You'd think the Air Force is the best funded of the three departments, and you'd be wrong. Why is that the case, Dave? Well, first, Francis, thanks very much for having me uh, back on. Um, what I would tell you in your audience is the Air Force budget is burdened by $39 billion in non-Air Force spending over which the Secretary of the Air Force has no control. And so these funds, which account for 18% of the total Air Force Department budget, and 20% of the Air Force as a service budget, they go directly to other Department of Defense agencies passing through the Air Force untouched. So, uh, you know, putting these other DOD agency funds where they belong um, results in the Department of the Air Force being second to the Department of the Navy in total obligational authority, and it puts the Air Force as a service in fourth place after the Army, Navy, and the other DOD agencies. Uh, the uh, Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, obviously is on his radar screen. He said recently, quote, we need to make sure the Air Force budget's represented in an appropriate way. What's an appropriate way, and what fixes this problem that you're laying out, Dave? Well, fortunately, as you mentioned, our top defense leaders starting to pay attention to this major perception problem. Uh, and here's why it's important. Studies, analyses, and service comparisons routinely perpetuate the deception that the Air Force is getting much more money than it actually is by normalizing this $39 billion pass-through 
as if it was integral to the Air Force Spending Authority, and it's not. Secretary of Defense uh, Austin recently acknowledged the situation in response to a congressional question. He said, we need to make sure the Air Force budget is represented in the appropriate way. And what that means is putting uh, the budget categories in the appropriate accounting bin. Dave, what fixes this? What fixes, what gets those money into those bins? Is it just a matter of Congress saying we're going to move these line items to where they fit more appropriately, or is there something more to it than that? No, quite frankly, it is a very simple solution. Um, and that is taking this $39 billion and putting it over into the DOD agency account. Uh, and then that will appropriately represent um, where these monies are going without getting into the specifics of the details of exactly what they are for. Um, uh, but I, I think some of the numbers um, are important. Um, the Department of the Air Force budget line, if you go in and you look at the top line today, is over $212 billion. Where in reality, if you move out the pass-through, um, you're looking at $156 billion is what the service, the Air Force as a service gets. Uh, and obviously that doesn't include the Space Force, which is getting $17 billion. And you mentioned the Space Force. Does this get more complicated as the Space Force matures and, and more capability is expected to out of the Space Force to deliver to the Joint Force? Not really, because again, the money doesn't go to either the Air Force or the Space Force. Um, it goes to other DOD agencies. And this is not a, a complex issue. Um, it does not require an act of Congress. It simply requires the leadership of the Department of Defense to allocate it in the appropriate location, which is the DOD agency account. You write, America's defense depends on dominance in air and space, but we can't be assured of that dominance in the future unless we change the way we invest now. Are you talking just about structural stuff or are you talking about what we actually spend the money on also, Dave? No, I'm talking about where we spend the money. I mean, here's part, the biggest threat to modernization of the Department of the Air Force is this pass-through because it creates the false impression that the Air Force is getting funds commensurate with the Army and the Navy departments. And it's not, it has not for decades. And as a result of that, the Air Forces have atrophied, significantly aged, and fall into quantities less than required to accomplish our nation's defense strategy. If you look at the past three decades, some three quarters of a trillion dollars has been buried in the Air Force budget that's actually gone to other defense agencies, not the Air Force. So we have a huge modernization challenge. Forgive me for going on, but it's important to understand that the Air Force is the only service that routinely operates weapon systems that average over 50 years of age. These are bombers, refueling tankers, and trainer aircraft. 80% of the Air Force combat forces don't have the stealth that's required to evade detection by enemy air defenses. So it's not just structural, it's actual, but it's this structural issue that's prevented actual increases that are absolutely required by the Air Force to modernize. Dave Deptula, thank you very much for joining me. Great to have you back in the program. Thanks, Francis. Coming next, 300 new IT hires coming to the Department of Homeland Security. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what tech leadership at the agency can do to keep them there. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Department of Homeland Security will onboard more than 300 new cyber specialists. DHS Chico Angela Bailey told you about that plan on Sunday's Government Matters. The next task for the agency will be to keep them. Richard Spires is principal at Richard A. Spires Consulting, former chief information officer at DHS. His new book is Success in the Technology Field, a guide for advancing your career. Richard, congratulations on the new book. Thanks very much for coming on the program. There are two pieces involved to what Angie's doing at your former agency. One is the agency's responsibility to helping these 300 new people develop a career, and the other is the employee's role in developing that to the point of your new book. What do you think the piece of each of those sides looks like, Richard? Welcome. Well, uh, yeah, thank you, Francis. It, yeah, it's so important. I, I think first I should say I, I really think it's great that DHS has stepped up and is aggressively trying to attract and hire uh, new cybersecurity talent. Um, Ali Mayorkas, their um, secretary, uh, said, "Hey, they've got 2,000 openings, and at least this is taking a, a you know a good start at it, right? With the 300 hires." That being said, kind of getting to your point. Yeah, I, I see three real challenges still uh, with DHS and what they're doing. One, you're going to bring all these people on board. They have to have meaningful jobs and and relatively quickly, uh, jobs that you know they can they can learn from, that they can they can grow in, and that they can meaningfully contribute to what the agency is trying to do. And the, the second point is that they need to come up with real learning paths, career paths, if you will. Uh, for these people so that they can grow over time. Otherwise, you're going to see a lot of attrition. And that's what I'm very concerned about. And I've seen that in the past, particularly in cybersecurity. You get good people coming into government, but there's so many opportunities for these specialists uh, in cybersecurity as they learn and grow. And trying to keep them, I think, is really, really key. So this idea of having true career paths so that over a two to three to five year period, People that are particularly early in their career can can show really positive momentum in their career. I think is is very very important for DHS right now to do. What's the what is the biggest gap that you see between providing that learning path and that learning path not career path not being present? Well, I, you know, having been in government a few different times. Um, you know, I, th I think they really struggle with laying out career paths that allow individuals to grow, particularly those that are high achievers, to grow rapidly in their career. You know, I've always said that going into government, you can do some things that are amazing compared to what you can do in the private sector. But then what happens in government is a lot of times because of the just the, you know, the GS schedule and the way things work, you're not seeing the high achievers grow quickly enough, you know, and so they get frustrated. And a lot of times you're going to lose some of your top talent within the first few years if you can't solve that. And I, I know this is a multidimensional problem and unions get involved and the like, but it's something that particularly in cybersecurity, I think it's something that we really need as a government to attack and, and to get our arms around and, and identify those high achieving individuals and, and, and you know, do everything you can to try to keep them by moving them into more and more senior roles relatively quickly. You mentioned the two to five year time frame. Is that what an agency should have ready to go when they bring somebody in? Once that person's onboarded, they've kind of gone through their grace period. The agency says, we really want to keep this person. Is that the time, do you think, to sit down with that person and say, listen, 
we think you've got a future here. We think you're terrific. And this is how we see you growing in the next five years to really give that employee a vision for the opportunity that's in front of them. Yeah, I think five years is the right time frame. In fact, I talk about that in the book and then viewing your career in five year increments um, because in five years you can achieve a lot. You, you, can, you can really grow in a role. You can become a real specialist in, in a particular area. Um, and, and so I think you need to, on the government side, and not just DHS, but all agencies, think about laying out that path and say, hey, if you do these things as an employee, okay, our part of the, of the deal is that we will then honor that and over a five-year period expect you to grow into this role with these level of responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if you can do that for individuals and, hey, if you can keep a, a real specialist for five years, you know, some of them will then say, hey, I'm going to go into the private sector. I'm going to do other things. But some of them are really going to love public service and you're going to be able to then keep them for a career. But I think that first five years is, is so critical. 30 seconds left, Richard. The, what you're getting at here is one of the big challenges in government, though, isn't it? Which is how do you keep people uh, engaged as technical experts and not just move them up the management chain, right? Yeah, and good, great point. And, and success is, is many different forms of success. I talk about in the book. I mean, there's a management track, but a lot of people want to stay technologists. And again, you need to have that career path for them. How do they become senior technical staff within a government agency? You know, and with the perks that should go with that. And I think that's something that government should be looking at more. Richard, congratulations on the book, Success in the Technology Field. Thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Right. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to learn more about the book at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, China creeping up on the United States in the artificial intelligence race. Straight ahead on Government Matters, making progress by developing intellectual property and stealing it. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Welcome back. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the Pentagon has more than 600 artificial intelligence projects underway. DOD will invest close to a billion and a half dollars to accelerate AI adoption. Andre Iancu is senior advisor for the Renewing American Innovation Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's former director of the Patent and Trademark Office. Andre, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What do you see as you look across the landscape of artificial intelligence in particular, but the uh, technology intellectual property landscape in general regarding national security? Welcome. Well, first of all, thanks uh, for having me on. Uh, it's an honor to be with you. Uh, look, uh, AI is a tool uh, unlike any that we have seen to date. Uh, and the capabilities that it opens up across the board, both on a national uh, security, from a national security point of view, but also from an economic security point of view, are, is, um, you know, uh, are unprecedented. Imagine, for example, drones or unmanned vehicles or soldiers uh, autonomously driving themselves in the next field of battle. Um, combine that with other new technologies, such as quantum computing, which can operate at millions of times the speed of the fastest computers here today. Um, and you, you can see the 
uh, issues that it can pose. The nation that gets to those combinations of technologies first will have an unprecedented advantage, both militarily and economically. You and your colleague, uh, former director of PTO David Kapos, are writing for CSIS about this issue. What do you see as the shortfalls right now in the way that the U.S. is preparing for this artificial intelligence race with China primarily, I imagine also with Russia? Yeah, and a number of other entities out there, China being the primary competitor right now. Look, for the United States to compete, we need both the public sector and the private sector to operate at uh, their highest capacities. First of all, on the public side, we need more investment into the research and development activities of, uh, of the nation uh, by the government. On the private side, likewise, we need more companies to invest. However, you know, what the private sector needs in order to invest in these advanced, quite risky technologies from an economic point of view, uh, the private sector needs intellectual property protection so that they know that at least their investments um, and efforts are protected down the line. The U.S., frankly, is falling behind on its intellectual property protections, not just with protecting what's already out there from theft from China and others, because that is already taking place, as we all very well know, but it also is failing to a large extent in the forward-looking protections. We need stronger intellectual property laws. We need stronger, more reliable patent rights, for example, copyrights, for example, <clears throat> to make sure that the private sector invests at the appropriate levels. You note in this work that the IP framework for the United States has not changed dramatically since the Constitution. What should that look like for a mid to late 21st century structure to protect the IP of these companies, these organizations that are developing this IP? Yeah, it's a very good point. So if you look at the fundamental statute, the initial question that's being asked by the patent statute, okay, which is what human creations are eligible for patent protection, right? Not all creations are eligible for patent protection, right? The fine arts, for example, a song, um, a, a dance piece, a movie, those are fine arts, a painting not protectable by patents, but technologies, right? Uh, computer chips, everything that we can touch and so on are protectable. Now that statute was written by Jefferson and Madison in 1793 and has basically not changed since. Of course, our technology has changed dramatically since then. So courts have been struggling with how to apply that, that original statute for the technologies of the future. Courts are struggling and with how to apply that, for example, to medical diagnostics, DNA technologies, but importantly for AI purposes, to information technologies, to data-driven technologies. We need uh, either the Supreme Court or somebody to fix that issue, but most likely, uh, frankly, in our view, we need legislation to finally tackle those most difficult questions that really haven't been tackled by Congress since 1793. Andre, we just have about a minute left. You mentioned the investments that you believe that the public sector needs to make. 
specifically for the federal government, how specific should those investments be? How prescriptive should those investments be? Look, um, I generally think that the nation needs an innovation plan. Um, and I think the nation needs to sit down at the high level, create a commission, have a lot of input from the public and private sectors to identify what are the key technologies of the future, whether it's AI, quantum computing, um, autonomous vehicles, biotechnology, um, a handful more. Let's identify them and then um, there should be a framework. This country, though, has benefited greatly from the free market system. The dynam dynamism that's being brought to bear by investors and innovators operating uh, at their full capacity, making their own market-driven decisions. But for that to happen, the government has to provide the appropriate framework of protection and incentives for our free market to operate independently. So I do think that we need a higher level uh, uh, innovation plan, but then to create a framework, but then to allow the free market system to operate at its maximum capacity within that framework. Andre, thanks very much for coming on. Much more I'd like to cover, but we're out of time. I appreciate you joining me today. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. You can find a link to Andre's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. You get a preview and a recap of every program when you sign up for our daily newsletters. Just enter your email in the red box on the homepage. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that 
the agencies will be able to access that. The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned. You ought to stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.